Hello, and welcome to Poll the Other One, a podcast where we see if pole dancing can solve all our problems. I'm dancing stick botherer Shandoxy. And I'm stick boundaries respecter Lulu Popplewell. Today, we're speaking to pole dancer, academic, and researcher into queer pornography, Alan Lichinsky. Lulu, what's the queerest thing you think could happen in a porn movie? I think spending the entire porno trying to get out of your Lucy and Yak dungarees. That's definitely the most bisexual thing that could happen in a porno. No, that would just be crying and tweeting. I don't think anyone would watch that. I would absolutely watch that. Yeah, I know you would. Hello, Paul the Other One, folks. This is a delight of an episode talking to Alon about pole dancing and gender, about their research into pornography, and their thoughts about what sex positivity actually means in porn and in life. How do you put consent at the centre of everything that you do? Heads up that there's an extended version of this episode on our Patreon. If you join us, you become part of what keeps the Pole Pod party rolling, and in exchange you get more in-depth interviews and other juicy goodies that we are working on. You can become a Patreon for a pound a month, and every contribution of any size helps us to keep making the podcast. So have a look in the show notes if you're curious. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. show. Thank Alan, you. you're an expert in queer pornography, what makes things horny and sexy in a good way. But we want to know, what would be the least sexy situation for pole dancing? Least sexy situation for pole dancing. Now, that is a challenge because I can probably imagine that, okay, I think the I've been massive, in a massive content <laughs> warning here, Tory politics, but... Imagining dancing for, I don't know, uh, a Tory party conference or something like that would make it really, really impossible for me <laughs> to feel anything like dirty in not a good way. Did you thoughts? Um, didn't we have another guest who also brought up a... A politician. Which was Theresa May or something. Is there yes. Least, um, I think speaking of someone who's just had three days of food poisoning, I can imagine the least sexy scenario to pull the hearts in. <laughs> but, uh, Fair enough. If you think the Tories are worse than my food poisoning, then that's... that's Sadly, it's probably the most lucrative and typical context for pole dancing in I terms of imagine. where clients come from <laughs> <laughs> and who's actually spending money on it. But as long as you don't know they are a Tory, you can at least pretend, I suppose, doing it at an explicit sort of, this is a Tory party party, um, <laughs> would be um, horrible. I love um, that we're going to go in depth on queer pornography, but what you've given a content warning for <laughs> is the mention yeah. of the word Tory. <laughs> well, ev everyone who knows me knows that the filthy stuff is going to be of the sexy kind rather than of the actually morally and ethically filthy um, <laughs> thing that was sort of less expected, I guess. So, 
Let's talk about pole dancing. How did you start pole dancing? It was all just a coincidence, really. Um, I was hanging with one of my partners back then, five or six years ago, it must have been. I'm not going to think of the exact date because it would be terrible. Um, <laughs> but um, we were hanging at her best friend's, um, this really badass French woman, um, a physicist, a tech developer, and a pole dancer. And she was the first person I'd ever met who had a pole right smack in the middle of her living room. Um, so we were just idly chatting, Sunday afternoon kind of thing. Um, and she was, she told my then partner, uh, oh, I've been sort of rehearsing this choreo. Do you want to have a look? Do you want to have a try? Um, oh, no, I haven't pole danced in years. You know, all the technical stuff is sort of defeating. I can do the slutty thing, but not really. The, oh, no, come on. It's going to be fun. And then sort of as an afterthought, she turns towards me and says, would you like to try? And I'm like, I've never done anything like that in my life. Um, I have, I mean, I love dancing, but I've always thought of myself as a terrible dancer. I think that would be a terrible idea. Oh, no, no, she says. Come on, it will be fun. Um, so we stripped down to my knickers. And <laughs> did, did anyone ask you to? <laughs> well, you kind of have to. I was instructed to. It wasn't spontaneous. Okay. <laughs> I mean, I do that spontaneously a lot of yeah. times. But it was the first time I was meeting um, Pauline, this woman. So the 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 it would have been odd. You um, can also legitimately say an astrophysicist made me do it. <laughs> a very niche excuse. Um, I think in this case it's a particle physicist, but um, too many physicists in this um in this story. So she had this very simple, but um, sort of simple, technically speaking, but very slinky choreo put together. And I was like, look, I see what you're doing, but I have no idea how you're doing any of those things. She, was, she gets into teacherly mode and says, okay, set a date. You'll come on your own and I'll teach you. I was like, okay, let's try this. And it was horrible. <laughs> Really, really horrible. I couldn't spin at all. I was, um, in retrospect, I was just gripping too hard. But I had no idea how to how that would work. So it took us perhaps 30 or 40 minutes of practice before I could actually land a firefighter spin. Can we say what that is to people who don't pole dance? Uh, it's one of the um, sort of core spins, you sort of swing your um, le the leg that's furthest from the pole around and wrap it around the pole and bring the other one in, sort of like firefighters do when sliding down the pole. It's probably what people have seen Kate Moss do in the White Stripes video. I just don't know what there, to do with myself. There you go. Yes. It. It's supposed to be one of the easiest ones to get around because you have this big swing of the leg sort of driving you. Rita, I was not getting it. It took me <laughs> half an hour to realize that I needed, didn't need to be that tense um, and that actually tension wasn't helping me. And when it finally happened, it was, well, it was love at first spin. Um, I've never been able to stay away from a pole for long ever since. Um, I said, I need to, uh, I really need to learn how to do this properly. Um, so I started looking up what the alternatives were and um, Queer Pole came up. So first Monday there was um, uh, a slot. I showed up there really, really early, feeling terribly intimidated. And then... Uh, 
few people sort of started trickling in, including you. Um, and I realized um, it was the kind of friendly space where no one cared that I had not the slightest idea of what I was doing. All that you that was important was that I seemed to be enjoying myself. Was it um, important that it was a queer pole dancing class? Oh, God, yes. I don't think I could have um, just dared go to any place. That, you know how so many pole studios are? That they, even if they've seen you, and um, I'm non-binary, but I was assigned male at birth, and people still occasionally use male pronouns for me when they don't know me. And still they will address the class as hello ladies, making you feel like you're not very welcome there, even if they've taken your money. Um, <laughs> so the fact that there was this openly accepting space, this space that made no assumptions about who you were, about what you wanted to do, um, about why you wanted to do it, um, and that was going to respect your choices in that sense. Yes, it was absolutely um, radically um, essential to my um, actually feeling comfortable enough to um, step through the studio at all. I'm just curious about this. Like, Lulu, apart from spinning around a metal object while you have food poisoning, <laughs> what would you find most off-putting about the idea of going to a pole dancing class? I think, well, we've talked about this before, it's that partly what to wear mm. and, uh, you know, do I have to be, like, hyper femme mm -hmm. and sexualized in a way that I'm not comfortable being mm. um or i think just looking stupid and that's and it sounds really like dumb for a stand-up because there's no way to get good at stand-up without looking really stupid a lot of times <laughs> in front of other people but um there's something about the doing that with my words that i'm fine with clearly as you'll have heard on this podcast before but it's I, like there's something about the physicality of it that really scares me it's so interesting because i guess people who are running classes and want to have a either an ethical purpose or just a good marketing purpose to make everyone feel as comfortable as possible. There's obviously no one-size-fits-all solution to what's going to make everyone accommodated, but um, it's really interesting that your take on what would immediately make you very tense about being in a class is mm. is quite specific <laughs> and completely different. Well, that's one of the things. <laughs> I think it was one of the ones I was scared the most at the beginning. Mm. But, but sorry, I interrupted you. No, no, no. But it's, it's interesting because I kind of identify with, I identify as a woman, I watch mm. her pronouns, but I do think the idea of turning up to a sort of hello ladies class and not being the right kind of lady it is it's really intimidating yeah what about those of us who are here precisely not to be ladylike right yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um no i think that the other thing that really intimidated me and that was held by Iris, Iris Sparkles, who used to run queer pole just being a lovely lovely person was the um feeling of possibly looking stupid because I had no idea what I was doing. And that's another thing that's kind of um, difficult about lots of pole places. They will say that something is um, open level or mixed level, and then you get there and they're like, what do you mean you don't know how to shoulder mount or yeah. something? <laughs> um, and you're like, well, I've never done that before. I can probably learn it if you take five minutes to teach me. But if you're just going to go ahead and assume that I know this shit, it's not going to go very well. Um, yeah, yeah. I think, um, uh, so just for 
broader context, a shoulder mount is a very difficult move <laughs> as well. So it's um, you lean back against the pole and then you kick into the air and you use your back to support you. Some people get it in their third class. I've been going for six years and I still can't fucking do it. So <laughs> I think. But it's interesting how, yeah, a lot of people's first experience of pole class is quite off-putting because it's like stuff is being raced through and you mm. feel stupid for not keeping up. Whereas people who actually really care about teaching and making sure that everyone has come to the pole class can do something and sort of meeting people where they are instead of your lesson plan that yeah. you've decided on. It's quite a rare quantity. One of the things, uh, one of the weird things that the pandemic brought was um, I actually got qualified as a pole teacher. What? Um, oh. Yes. Um, there was this Canadian studio trying to put together an online training package and they were looking for a beta testers. Um, and I was like, well... I pole dance and teaching is the day job, so um, I'm happy to help. Um, and they gave you the qualification for, well, not for free, but as compensation for helping them um, put the package together. One of the things that I really, really had to insist was don't um, don't make assumptions about what people know. Um, even if you have a package of 10 sessions, by session seven, probably people will have forgotten some of the details of five weeks ago. So just always have a refresher, always make sure that everyone is on the same page before building on that. And they, I think they did a cracking job of actually um, getting that in the final version. And I think Iris is spectacularly good at that. I've sort of taken hints that I brought into my <laughs> my regular teaching from that. Um, but the whole thing about never starting from anything advanced, always building from the ground up. Um, Literally. Make, yes. <laughs> don't put people in the air yeah, when they yes. don't want to. <laughs> I think it's difficult as a teacher because when you're so deeply versed in something, you forget what the basics are but I got burnt by this recently because I, I started doing Pilates um, mm. because I'm just trying to live that isn't in life <laughs> with and, the dog like. yeah, yeah absolutely um, <laughs> it's a it's an equipment studio and I got there and she was like okay so if you just get on the reformer and I was like I don't What's know which that? one the reformer is and of course she uses it every day so it's not she wasn't trying that's the thing is I don't think the teachers are trying to make you feel little make you feel inexperienced it's just it's so it's so commonplace to them to to use those words. And yeah. They um, the most useful thing I've ever heard about structuring a comedy show is mm. from really talented writer director called Charlie Dinkin, and she said, "Take the stairs with the audience." So it's the idea that in terms of you want your show, in terms of what you want your show to be doing, mm. you want to take the lift and go with the audience <laughs> to write where you want to be. But um, I was directing a friend's show, which is about gender identity and mm -hmm. cancel culture, and it was really helpful to think with them about how we could meet an audience member who knows. Nothing, nothing about queer life, nothing about online cancel culture or anything, and help guide them all the way through the show. And I found the stairs thing really helpful mm -hmm. as a way of phrasing it. And similarly in a class, you know, you're meeting people on the very bottom stair. Mm -hmm. How can you guide them step by step? The best advice I've ever had for writing was uh, I went to see Russell T. Davis do a talk. Mm. And he, uh, people asked him, you know, what's, what's your best basic advice? And he said, don't forget to welcome people in. Mm. Yeah. So welcoming <laughs> them in or taking the stairs. I think it's, it's so easy to forget. Yeah. Um, now, I think that is really a great point. You're absolutely right that people do 
don't do that sort of thing out of ill will. They are just used to everyone knowing. But the problem is that if you are then the person who doesn't know, you get this strong feeling of, well, this isn't my place then because everyone's everyone here seems to already know this stuff. So I should probably be somewhere else. Um, <laughs> um, and it takes a while to just learn that, well, no, actually, you're entitled to be in that space as much as everyone else. And it's their job to make you welcome, um, even if they don't at first know how to. Hmm. So like an alarming amount of people we've spoken to on the show, <laughs> you said that your first experience of pole dancing was horrible. <laughs> yeah, this is not making me keen to try it. <laughs> Everyone's like, it was awful, I hated it. But everyone loves it the second time. That's true. There is a split though, because some people seem to have what they like about it is how hard it mm. is and then other people instantly fall in love I find again through a very unrepresentative sample size of what 16 guests so far I think my impression is that people who have had dance experience or mm. who are quite comfortable with movement and physical stuff tend to not be as horrified by the experience <laughs> whereas people who've come from like other fields or mm -hmm. other works of life, the like physical intensity of it is a shock to the system. But what kept you going back? What do you enjoy about pole? Oh, that's a really good question. I think that um, as far as I'm concerned, the physical intensity is a feature, not a bug. Um, I I actually love the um, how demanding it is of every single bit of you. Um, but I think that what made me fall in love was that no one had ever told me that I could do anything like that. People talk about being socialized male or female. And one of the really important differences is, I think, how you're taught to be in your body. If people raise you thinking you're a boy, there's this constant pressure to be big, to be powerful, to be strong um, and aggressive, even in the way you move. You don't know how to be in your body any other way, or at least you're not taught. Um, I had this, I had a pretty horrible time of that as a kid because I really didn't get it. I felt very awkward trying to be that persona that I was supposed to be. Um, it wasn't until my teens, my late teens, really, that I discovered that, well, there were spaces where I could sort of learn to enjoy my body without it necessarily being aggressive or competitive towards others. But Certainly, there was no chance for me back then to realize that you're actually allowed to be graceful. Graceful is really, really out of the of the range of allowed things if you're um, seen as male. Where did you grow up, by the way? Can you remind me? It wasn't the UK. No, no, dear God, no. I grew up in a town that shall remain nameless in northeastern Argentina. Um, the kind of place where... They are very proud that it was one of the very first cities to be founded after the Spanish conquest. And as far as they are concerned, everything has gone downhill from them. Okay. Um, they, they they still pine for the 16th century. <laughs> um, so Perfect the, fit for wow. queer pole dancing. Oh, it is fantastic, right? Um, growing up a queer kid there was... Um, Absolutely unbearable. I, I had to get out of there as soon as I could, which was I finished um, school mm. and and went moved to Buenos Aires and never looked back. Um, it's got quite a bit better in 
the many years <laughs> since I left. Um, but it's still very, very traditional, very conservative. And I find I have to tone myself down a lot whenever I go visit my folks because um, my sort of nuclear family still lives back there. Um, and it's a really hard place to be a, an openly queer person. Now, imagine back um, last millennium. Um, <laughs> um, so you sort of grow up deep in the heart of macho culture with this very, very um, hegemonic message about how you are supposed to be um, as a quote-unquote boy. Um, Can I ask what might be a stupid question? Yes. Um, so uh, my mum does a lot of Argentine tango. Oh, I, really? Um, yeah, <laughs> yeah she's, um, she went off to Buenos Aires on her own for a month just to go to Malongas. That's she's amazing. She's um, a mad woman. Um, she called it her midlife fiesta. <laughs> <laughs> and, um, but what you were saying about being graceful, so I know there's still the idea of the men leading there, mm. um, but I do think it's quite graceful, the movement. It is, in a way, um, and one of the things I did when I moved to Buenos Aires was start going to Milongas and try to pick some uh, pick up some tango. I'll, go, I'll get back to this in a minute because mm. there is queer tango London and it's amazing. Okay, um, I'll let my mum know. <laughs> Every year um, she accidentally gets caught up in the Pride March and, and decides she loves it. So <laughs> accidental allies are still yeah, allies. Um, yes, absolutely. And it's a very welcoming space. So you're right. The um but it's a very, very specific kind of grace. And to be honest, um not many people in my generation were into that sort of thing. Okay. Um my grandparents used to go to Milongas. Um when they were younger, that's that was very much their generation's thing. But at the time my parents were born, tango was sort of old and fussy and retro in not a very good way. And it didn't really start coming back in um, until the 90s. So while that model was there, it would have been very weird to try to sort of emulate. And at the same time, while graceful, there is a lot of um, almost aggression in the way the, the leading dancer For is. For sure. Um, and, and the way that... Um, uh, so my mum's told me about how it works for longest people choose who they dance with it's very male led and you have to do these sort of like subtle nods um, as if unto a lord and, like, and, and if they don't sort of catch your eye back you have to stay sitting as a woman and waiting to be picked by yeah them. basically yes. it's um, it's so it, so of course it is you know there is this very kind of like heteronormative leading mm -hmm. um, I'm sorry I didn't mean to imply that graceful tango was part of the like national <laughs> physiological <laughs> vocabulary um, I was just interested in if it if it came um, up for you as no, a, it, did, it did um, and I absolutely loved the tango um, I'm starting to sort of pick that back up because I haven't tangoed in years but so um, pole was that a bit of a subversion of ways of existing in your body that you'd been taught it was the biggest fuck you I could give to that side of my upbringing and lots of the joy in in pole dancing is very loudly saying I am not the person you expected me to be. Mm. I'm being very obviously not the kind of person you expected me to be. And it makes me hot. <laughs> <laughs> about pole dancing before we go into a few more questions about your teaching life and area of research. What has been your favourite pole dancing experience? Mm. Okay, let me think. 
As a counter to what Lily was saying about the uh, everyone saying that their first experience was horrible, I still count my first experience as horrible, yet one of the best I've had, mm -hmm. because it taught me so much. It was just this blinding revelation that these things were possible. Mm. Um, but I think that the most thrilling yet disastrous um, <laughs> experience I've had was um, I have you ever been to Club Antichrist no. is it's this big gothy um, slightly kinky um, club night with a playroom and the stage and shows um, Cat Lee performs there uh, I think. yes Cat yeah. um, has done that quite a few times we've never been on stage at the same time though um, because the um, they do have this segment where you can volunteer in advance to do a show with the sole condition that you have to strip. And once knowing that later on they would be having this performance by um, a band that usually carries a pole to stage, I asked and got agreement to use the pole for my own um, strip routine. Oh my it, God. <laughs> it was great. It was Horrifying because I was polling in the middle of the um, the band setup. You know, the drum kit was there and the guitar was there, and I was like, "What if I kick that <laughs> bass? They're going to kill me!" <laughs> and it was a lot tighter than I expected in terms of space, and I had this very flashy routine put together. Um, in every but, sense of the word, <laughs> yes, I had such a great time. Um, uh, it was a great song too. I, I have to say, I, I put together a fantastic, fantastic um, concept for my first ever pole show. It sounds like uh, you smashed it. Um, literally, <laughs> <laughs> at some point, but no one noticed. That's a great thing. <laughs> I did smash into um, a speaker at one point. <laughs> Not a par for the course with pole. Sweet. So, uh, please, could you tell us a little bit about your area of academic research? Yes, I can. I have to be absolutely um, careful of not boring everyone because you're asking an academic about their field of research and that's a recipe for, you know, someone dumping their special interest on you. Have you seen those videos which is where things are explained in five levels? Yes. Like, yeah, okay, so we'll go for like a level two to three. <laughs> okay. Um, the sort of short version is... My main line of work is probably as filthy as the topic we were just talking about. <laughs> I'm a linguist by training, but I mostly study how people talk about um, sex and sexuality and gender. Um, I've been working with a colleague for a few years now trying to look at the language of porn. And by porn, we've been, in this case, just uh, porn writing erotic stories rather than uh, video, which is not I was not just going to ask, mm. do you mean like wordy word languages uh, or pictures uh, pictures uh, language? Worthy, worthy um, porn in this case, mm -hmm. um, because it's our specialism and because it's the, the kind of thing that doesn't seem to have um, attracted as much interest. There's been a lot of research on uh, visual porn since the 70s, lots of it motivated by very puritanical um, ideas of there is something wrong with this and we must fix it. Um, but perhaps because it takes a little more 
more effort to realize that words can be equally filthy. Um, there's been a lot less brouhaha about erotica, and there's this um, great use of brouhaha. Yeah. Sorry, couldn't let that go on. I was going to just say that um, there was this gaping hole in research, um, <laughs> but um, so we've been looking at how people talk about sex, how people represent sex. For example, um, one of the great things about looking at how people talk about sex rather than at images of people doing it is that you get a lot more about how people think about the issues. The first paper I ever did on, on this topic was looking at um, essentially who fucks who. Because, you know, when you're talking about sex in words, you can say Alex fucked Chris, or you can say Chris fucked Alex, or you can say Alex and Chris fucked. Um, and each of those versions tells you sl a slightly different story about who's got the lead role in that and who's just there being done things to. Um, not that there's anything wrong with being done um, to in that sort of context. I basically wanted to see if the way people thought about that sort of thing reflected, you know, the usual patriarchal um, rule that men do and women are done to. So I took this big bunch of stories um, of hetero couplings and painstakingly counted who was doing the fucking and who was getting fucked. What, literally uh, with like a tally chart? Um, I yep, use tick, a computer tick. to make it a bit easier. Um, but yes. They've got all um, sorts of <laughs> I do the sort of big data kind of thing. So usually you need um, some kind of technical assistance to speed up the counting because it's relatively easy to do that with one story. But then people will say, well, what tells you this is representative. So to claim that you're representative, you say, well, I've done this with 5,000 stories and these are the overall patterns. Um, so going back to what you were saying earlier about um, ideas of aggression, Pismo, mm -hmm. is the person doing the fucking inherently more aggressive? Is that how it's seen or dominant or? I would say dominant or um, it's more of an agent, if you want. They have more agency over the situation is, was my claim um, okay. with so, this work so at the time. So getting fucked in, implies passivity. In a way, you can sort of get a sense of um, whether that is the case, but looking at how people are describing the action in more detail. And sometimes you get people saying like, such and such was getting fucked enthusiastically. <laughs> um, but mostly it's someone was fucking someone else enthusiastically. The enthusiasm is... I'm just thinking of, about power bottoms here. Yes. Um, there I'm are some lovely <laughs> stories about power buttons. And we're back to the butthole topic again. Um, it <laughs> just seems begging to, me. to be yeah, filled. <laughs> it happens, but it's not very common. Um, I think that what I found that first time and what seems to be the, the general rule, there's a bit of everything in porn. Um, it's not this monolith of horrible, horrible patriarchal sexism. That sounds nice. Um, There's something for everyone. We <laughs> yes. should watch some now. Yeah. <laughs> However, if what you're looking for is not horrible patriarchal bullshit, you have to uh, probably search a bit more. Uh, but there will be something for you these days. The, the archive we have has stories all the way you know, from the early days of the internet in, in the 90s. And even back then, people were posting quite radical porn in the sense of being a lot more diverse and a lot more progressive about who can be 
enthusiastic or who can have agency um, than you would see in more mainstream kind of media. Mm -hmm. um, so yes, there's a lot of crap there, but no more than in the rest of what we see mm -hmm. out there. Settle an argument that I'm having with my partner. Go on. Okay, so I, this is this is for visual porn, but mm -hmm. um, so, say you had a bisexual cis man and a bisexual cis woman having what is quite pedestrian. Mm -hmm. so, is that queer porn? If it's not, if it's about visual representation rather than their like internal intent, mm -hmm. is it so straight they've queered it? <laughs> <laughs> there was this really. Uh, I think that's a great question and probably not one that can't be answered straight up because um, queer theories have been having that I argument for a couple of decades. Well, <laughs> 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 definitely, I have to know it's, what it's your boyfriend queer. is it, saying. He said it's that, not queer porn. I think uh, it is. Trixie, um, I think it's hard because. Um, the intent of a work, the intent of the person who made that bit of porn matters only in so much as you know about it. If you're a viewer and you're entirely innocent um, about what was going on in these people's minds and you can't spot anything that you can actually see in the performance that tells you, well, this is queering the, the way I expect sex to go, you're perfectly entitled to see that there's just plain, um, straight um, sex. Now, perhaps if they had a, you know how some porn has these short clips with the performers yeah, right they, at the beginning where yeah. they tell you what their, their intent was and what their experience was going to be like and why they were doing it. Perhaps that would change even the way you see the the actual fucking mm -hmm. um i don't know i haven't done that bit of research i don't know of anyone who's done that bit of research that would be fascinating but so hard to clear with an ethics board they usually object to you as showing people actual clips of people fucking um boring. <laughs> yeah boring Conference right <laughs> i think it is a really really good question and i suppose that in the end if queerness is about upsetting assumptions, it will in the end depend of what are the assumptions that the viewer is coming with. Mm -hmm. um, in a way, meaning is not something that is in the clip or the story or the photo. No, it's something you that you make it. with it. Yeah. If you'll permit me, I'd just be really curious to see if you agree with this because I was thinking along a parallel line of mm -hmm. What would make a pole dancing class legitimately queer as mm -hmm. opposed to not queer? Because I know from the experience of so many of my friends that if there isn't the word queer in front of something sometimes, they'll no, just go, no. it's not for me. Which mm -hmm. is sometimes a shame because it's like, hey, a lot of these spaces could be for you. But my experience or at least impression of a queer pole dancing class is that um, you write your own rules from the bottom, mm. essentially, is that... <laughs> There is a, well, <laughs> the top, or the giggling at the word bottom. I mean, your job must be a yeah. nightmare. Yeah. That. How do you get to lunch? <laughs> but um, I guess I find it interesting because even though there are often in queer poll classes, 
there's an understanding that you've discarded typical things like a very sort of femme type mm. movement in pole or not. People sometimes kind of pick them up and put them back on. So <laughs> I have feel like I know a couple of assigned female at birth people who've come to pole classes really disinterested in a lot of the femme type movements, but find that in that kind of environment, they can pick them up and play with them and then put them back. It's mm -hmm. not prescriptive. So would that make sense as a sort of to queer a porn space is it's just going, you don't have to be bound to these rules, but you can have them if you want. Mm. You're just not expected to. Yes, absolutely. I think it's very deeply connected in the end to the question of consent. Are you doing this because everyone expects you to or are you doing this because you want to? Are you being feminine because that's what everyone has been demanding from you all your life? Or are you being feminine in this specific case because you were just feeling like it? And as with everything else, consent is really radically changes the, the rules of the game. I think you, in, in the context of pole dancing, people do have a lot of space to think about how they want to do their gender or even if they want to gender their performance um, in any recognizable way at all. And it's perhaps more obvious if you are coming at this from from a sort of mask standpoint because pretty much everything in, in pole dancing is quite incompatible with ways of being masked in the world. Um, but even for someone who's been um, socialized in a more femme way, the vocabulary of pole dancing is not exactly the vocabulary of femininity. It's a very particular kind of femininity. And perhaps you've been told that that's not for you too. So it can feel equally radical and equally queer mm. to pick that up by yourself mm. as it can for someone who was AMAP. Kitty Valora talks about that a lot. So Kitty Valora is a guest in series one mm. and she, with a lot of agency, mm -hmm. she performs a kind of pole dancing that rails against the fact that feminine sexuality is punished. That, yes. yeah, Having sexual desire or sexual power as a femme-coded person is not something people tend to accept. Mm -hmm. So... I think it's, it can be very, very empowering to say, I am doing this for myself, by myself, in my own terms. And while it might look on the surface very similar to doing the same thing for someone else, there is a kind of energy in the dancing that you can see um, is radically different when it's a choice. Mm. Has pole dancing changed or informed how you think about either pornography itself or your area of research more generally? I don't think I can pinpoint very direct connections, but I will say that there is something um, quite deep that um, pole dancing has made me think about over and over and over. Um, and that is um, reconsidering generally um, what it means to be sex positive. Does there's this really deep contradiction um, deep down in our culture where you're expected to be sexually desirable. Everyone wants to be sexually desirable. Everyone wants to be seen as, you know, having a rich and varied sexual life. But at the same time, no one wants to be a slut. Um, so you have to navigate this issue of being sexual but not being sexual, being open about um, your sexuality but never really talking about sex because it's a taboo subject. And that 
digs its roots so, so deeply that I keep finding ways um, in which I inadvertently was being sex negative just because that's the default frame of mind. Something like pole dancing that not only encourages you to connect with your own sexuality, if that's your thing, because as you were saying earlier, there are people for whom it's just the fitness thing. In a context like um, the one we used to be in queer pole, where you have a space to think about your own sexuality and your own idea of sexiness, and where you get to see a stupendously varied array of different ways of people being sexy in their own terms, um, it really forces you to to rethink, oh, why didn't I ever think that that could be, you know, a sexy thing? Um, even if it's not necessary for me, because very often it's, um, well, your kink is not my kink and that's okay. Um, but the actual effort of having to think, well, no, that's not my thing and that's okay, um, is something that comes up very, very much for me um, in my pole practice. And I think that it does carry over to the way I think about my academic work. Where have you landed on with what you think sex positivity is? <laughs> um, I'll say that's a work in progress. I don't think I have any definitive answers to that. Um, but I think sex positivity is once again about taking the idea of consent and running with it all the way through. There's nothing that's intrinsically wrong um, sex-wise as long as everybody involved is happy with it. And at the same time, there's nothing about sexuality that's um, necessarily right unless everyone involved is um, perfectly happy with it. It's not about the things you're doing, really. It's about the spirit in which you do them and the idea that everyone is doing them fully, voluntarily, uncoerced and enthusiastically. I don't know where that is going to go because it does raise a lot of other questions. It's um, so interesting. I've been watching Ruby Rare, who's a mm -hmm. sex educator. Do a lot My of friend. Oh, right. <laughs> um, I really like how she talks very eloquently about how, um, I'm probably phrasing it badly, but what I understood was she's kind of said that people tend to confuse the idea of sex positivity with compulsory sluttiness. Yes. <laughs> and that's not it at all. That sex positivity can be that when you don't have the energy or the interest in having a lot of sex or da-da, that is also sex positivity. It's mm -hmm. connecting with your real desires mm -hmm. and where you're at. And I think, yeah, something that might scare people about pole is the idea that you need to get on the pole in a bikini and grind immediately or you're doing it <laughs> badly when actually there's more of an invitation to yes. play around with it however you like yeah um yes absolutely the, uh, the um, i think um compulsory sexuality is one of those um is the sort of counterpart to the, to the overall sex negativity. You try to squish things down and then they keep popping up in inappropriate places. Um, I think a, a genuine sex positivity would be finding the balance. Mm -hmm. um, let the sexiness flow when it wants to. And if it's not happening, then chill. That's, there's nothing wrong with that. There's plenty of people who are ace or who go through phases of not having a lot of interest in sex. And that's perfectly cool too. Mm. Fun.
you are fabulous and it's been <laughs> such you. a treat having you on the show um <laughs> thank you so much for yeah, having it's me it's a pleasure um where are you at in your poll journey kind of currently and where can people find you if Ooh. you're comfortable with that people can find me i suppose mostly on Inter- instagram these days i'm alan lk so a l o n underscore lk mm-hmm. Um, although I'm not posting very much in part because, you know, as I was saying earlier, social media saturation and also because I'm getting a bit fed up with the social media walled gardens. I'd love to sort of carry this over to a, a, a more open platform, um, but that doesn't seem to be uh, an alternative, a decent alternative to Instagram that doesn't involve giving Mark Zuckerberg money. <laughs> um, <laughs> so I'm trapped with the day. Where my pole journey is, is I am desperately trying to see if um, something like Queer Pole can happen again to sort of reconnect with you and with the rest of the bunch who were such a lovely group to see week after week. Um, and in the meantime, I'm doing, well, my own version of, um, what did you call it earlier? Horny Despair? Horny <laughs> yes. yes. Um, I'm doing Horny Despair on my own pole in my own bedroom um, at my own pace. You can find me in my own bedroom. <laughs> 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 Horny Despair. <laughs> Living my best life (laughs) thank you so much thank you you so much for having me this was lovely it's a pleasure Pull the Other One was created by me, Shandoxy, and co-hosted with Lulu Popplewell. This episode was edited by Alice Rosenthal, with original music by Amelia Baylor. If you'd like the longer version of this interview with Alon, or you're just enjoying the show and would like to help us keep making it, head over to our Patreon. Every pledge is super helpful to continue podcasting. Thanks so much for listening. Follow us on Instagram at Pull the Other One, and see you next time.